today we're going to talk about Romans. And we're in Romans chapter 14. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be in Romans 14 and the first part of Romans 15. It all hangs together to talk about this issue of gray matters. Um, and, And it really is gray in the terms of it's not black and white, these issues that we're talking about. But gray in the sense that you've really got to, you got to use your gray matter to think through some of these things because it gets complicated to make decisions where the Bible doesn't clearly speak. Um, there's a, a lot of ways we can think about this, but let me, let me talk about this as this is perhaps matters of specific application. We're not talking about where the Bible's clear but it's applications, and for some of those people uh, and some of us, the application has become, well, traditions. Um, from Fiddler on the Roof, by the way, if you're looking for some movies to fill your time during the hot days of summer, this is one that would be worth you watching, if you've never watched it, watching it again, and uh, really engaging with some of the issues that come up. And there's a lot of gray issues even in this movie and how they are living out their traditions, and um, how uh, particularly marriage is being played out in that situation. Uh, This issue of how we relate to one another over gray issues is really important, and it's the natural next step in what Paul has been developing here in the book of Romans. Tom Schreiner says, "...properly relating to brothers and sisters who have different understandings of debatable issues fulfills the law of love that we just talked about, love one another, and is part of what it means to live a life that is wholly given over to God. If you're really dedicated to God, you're going to love one another. Then you're going to have to figure out, how do I deal with these issues where where Christians differ? Um, Let me tie this in even bigger. Uh, Frank Thielman says, Paul's reasoning in this passage arises from the description of the believer's character that's developed in 12, 1 and 2, fully devoted to God, renewing your mind. There Paul had considered the thinking of believers transformed by the gospel and renewed by God to be the basis out of which they discern the will of God and decide how to live out the gospel that's portrayed in 118 through 1136. So in one sense, this is This is just how you live out everything that he laid the foundation for. And and I want to remind you once again, just getting a list of things to do um, is never enough. You really need to understand why we do these things. That's why Paul takes 11 chapters to lay out the gospel. I really think we've learned a lesson of what, what what it looks like. When we just tell people how to behave without anchoring it in the gospel, we've lost a whole generation after just trying to tell them how to behave rather than anchoring it in 11 chapters of the gospel. You've got to get 11 chapters of doctrine and understanding who God is and and the grace of the gospel. You've got to understand all of that before you're actually motivated to live out your Christian life. And so this is all tied together. And now we're getting to how we love one another, brothers and sisters, where we disagree on debatable matters. And so let me give you the summary of where we're going to go over the next couple of weeks. He's going to tell you, don't judge, edify, build each other up, and accept. Okay, that's his, that's his issue. <laughs> don't judge. Don't judge somebody in these debatable issues. You can have differences of opinion. Edify, try to figure out how to build each other up, not only with your words, but with your behavior, and accept them as brothers and sisters. Don't draw such um, narrow lines that that your, your circle is so narrow that nobody can live within your circle. We'll t- 
talk about that in just a minute. Let me, let me give some definitions here. What does it mean? In the original context, Paul is writing to the people who live in Rome, and let me just review a little bit of what's happened there. The church had started in Rome largely with Jewish believers, but then a slow trickling in of Gentile believers who perhaps had come to faith through Paul's ministry in the world and had gone to Rome now. And so you've got this this mixture of Jews and Gentiles in this church in Rome. And they're trying to figure out how to get along, how to how to live with um, Gentile backgrounds and Jewish backgrounds that really brought them different traditions together. Well, this thing gets exacerbated when um, Claudius, one of the emperors of Rome, uh, realizes that there's tensions between these two, and he wants peace in Rome at all costs. So he, he kicks all of the Jews and the Gentile Christians out of Rome. He, he kicks them out, and, and it, boy, because of their fighting and their, their bickering, they're gone for about five years, and then they're able to come back. And when they come back, now they're having to figure out how do we exist together. So there's tension between these two groups, as I'm sure um, the bickering has continued, and they are looking at each other and say, it's your fault that we had to leave Rome. No, it's your fault that we had to leave Rome. And they're fighting back and forth. And so Paul is really trying to unify this church. Um, and so he, he divides this issue into, and there's no judgment here, but the strong and the weak. And now, in the original context, the strong were mostly Gentiles who basically said this, grace frees me to not live by Jewish standards. There are some standards that the Jews live by, and because of grace, I don't have to live by those standards. Now, there probably were some Jews who had embraced that freedom, like Paul clearly does. Paul would put himself in the strong group. There are those who Paul labels weak, um, and the, the weak are mostly Jewish, who say, my conscience convicts me to live by the Jewish standards, the traditions I grew up with. My suspicion is there are probably some Gentiles who liked those and jumped into that category. But it's how they are living, particularly by these uh, standards of what you can eat and whether you observe certain uh, festivals and holy days. Do you still observe the, the, the five festivals of the Jewish calendar? Do you still observe Sabbath? Do you still observe Sabbath with uh, not eating kosher food or only eating kosher food? What about Passover? It's those kind of issues that were uh, um, really leading to their conflict. But now, that's not an issue for us. We, we don't usually, even though there are Jewish communities and, and Christian Jewish communities who have chosen to live by the Jewish calendar out there, that's not really an issue for us. But let me kind of broaden it out. Um, if I were to make the parallel today, the strong people are the people who say, my conscience allows me to do something which makes some people feel uncomfortable. I feel strong because of grace that I'm able to do certain things, but other people are uncomfortable that I feel free to do that. I feel free to behave a certain way. The weak people are the people who say, my conscience convicts me not to do something some other people feel free to do. And the question is, how do we get get along with each other in the middle of all this? How do we practice dedication to the Lord and loving one another? Now, let me just go ahead from the outset and say Paul's part of the strong. Paul strides, sides with the strong on the basic issues involved. But his main concern is to get each group to stop criticizing the other and to accept each other in the spirit of love and unity. Paul's deal is not to try to get you to be strong. 
That's not his point. He's fine with people who have consciences that, that restrict their opportunities to do certain things. And so Paul is he's not trying to get them to um, move from one category to the other. He's trying to get them to live together um, with some sense of love and, and community and fellowship so that the gospel can advance. Now, two things I want to clarify here. It does say, don't judge, edify, and accept. But don't deny the truth. This doesn't mean real important matters, significant doctrinal moral issues you can just, you know, wink at. It's not what he's saying at all. Don't deny when there's truth and when there's morality, but also don't deny that there are differences. Sometimes we have to say we're different and we're going to love each other anyways. So what goes on the list, okay? Uh, what, what What would you put on the list today? Um, I think there's a lot of things. Um, masks. Should you wear masks? Should you not wear masks? Homeschooling. Is homeschooling the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Or, or, are you so convicted about homeschooling or, or having your kids not taken out of the culture so they can be an impact? Is that an issue? What about vaccines? Whether you should take the vaccine or not. Alcohol or beer. Um, some voting issues. Should Washington, D.C. be a 51st state? Um, would we fight about that? Um, translations of the Bible. Adoption. Here's my favorite one. It's, it's debatable about what are debatable issues, okay? <laughs> that could be debatable. Is it on the list or not on the list? Well, we'll fight about that. Birth control. Um, maybe I can do it better this way by saying, here are the things that you need to not um, allow there to be differences on. Scripture, the inspiration and errancy of Scripture. Scripture is true. The Trinity, um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The fact that we bear the image of God and that we bear the image of God as males and females. I think that is uh, not only anchored in the teaching of Genesis 1 through 3, but it's reiterated in the New Testament as well. Um, the seriousness of sin, that sin is a major issue. All of us are sin sinners, and all of us are equally guilty before God. Salvation is found only in Jesus, and we have a hope that Jesus Christ is going to come and set things right. Those are the things. Scripture, Trinity, image of God, sin, salvation only in Jesus, and our hope. I think there's a lot of room outside of that to differ. And let me give you an example of that. When I travel around the world, we work with people who differ in many ways uh, from us in terms of even our doctrinal statement here at Fellowship. When we're in Nicaragua, we work with a much broader denominational group than than. I would have normally felt like I was comfortable working with in Nicaragua. If you've been there, you, you understand that the, the, the people that we work with have, um, have a lot of different perspectives. Although they believe the Word of God, although they may not interpret it well, and that's why we're there, they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They believe we're created in the image of God. Sin's a problem. Uh, Jesus is the only solution, and He's going to set things right. They believe all of those essentials. But boy, there's a lot of other things where there's major differences. Um, 
one of the things in Nicaragua is definitely whether God has a hearing problem. Uh, because the music there is, if you think our music is loud, you go with us on a mission trip and you'll come back and be happy. In the Czech Republic, um, boy, there are a lot of cultural differences in the Czech Republic. Um, I've told this story before, but at Arca Church in Pardubica, after church, you can walk into their coffee shop and purchase a beer in the church. <laughs> the first time I saw that, my initial response was, I'm taking a picture. Um, I, I remember the first time that we were at uh, Vinohrady Church in Prague, and we had communion for the first time, and they used real wine. And after the service, one of our students came running up to me and said, uh, Mr. Ken, Mr. Ken, I'm so sorry. I drank the wine. Are you going to have to send me home? <laughs> yes. Uh, no. I mean, here in the U.S., I think there are, there are ways we can partner with people who don't believe everything that we believe. And we can partner with other churches in town. We can partner with ministries. Now, you know, we do have a doctrinal statement that's, that's actually narrower than the six things that I said. And if you're going to be part of our staff, it's probably even more narrow than that. Um, because we are, we are really guardians of the, of the truth, and, and, and it gets, gets more and more narrow. Um, but how do we handle it? Because we don't have to fight about everything, but there are some things that we put our foot down on, and we say doctrinal truth and moral imperatives, those things we're not going to budge on. Um, even at uh, Arca Church in Pardubica, they don't, they don't um, squabble over whether drunkenness is wrong. Drunkenness is wrong. They would clearly say drunkenness is wrong. Um, let's see if we can move on here. Chuck Swindoll says this, Paul will address both the weak in faith, whose excessive caution might make them fearful and legalistic, and the strong whose love of liberty might make them callous and careless. He exhorted believers of both persuasions to avoid judging, that is, despising one another as worthless. You don't understand. You don't get it. You don't understand what's really important. And he does that based on how we conduct ourselves in matters of conscience. So let's see if we can move into the passage and see what Paul says here. Uh, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to talk about this acceptance. Accept your brothers and sisters. Don't judge them. Build them up. Let Jesus be the judge, not you or me. Okay. This is probably the, the, the way to start is really important. Remember, you're not the judge of their life. Um, you ain't the boss of them. Uh, here's how Paul says it. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Accept <laughs> the one. And I'm going to dig deep in this and take this apart a little bit. When he says accept... Um, he, he uses this word proslambano. It is it's received towards you. It's the word towards, pros, and receive. Receive them towards you. It's more than just tolerate. It, it does, he doesn't say just tolerate them. He says welcome them, accept them. This is like the warm welcome into your circle of friends. You get along with them. They're part of your heart and your home. We're on that team together. Um, you know, when you're in a foreign country, um, and you're doing mission work, like in the Czech Republic or in Nicaragua, um, in 
the Czech Republic in particular, there are so few Christians there. Um, less than half percent are evangelical Christians. Less than one half of a percent are evangelical Christians. I've used this stat before. In Pardubice, which is a city roughly our size, um, Pardubice is a city of between 90 and 100,000. They have five churches. Total people attending church today in Pardubice, less than 300. 90,000 people, 300 are believers. If you love Jesus and you think the Bible's true, you're on my team. And we're not going to argue about everything. Um, I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to say, yes, let's, let's, <laughs> I was going to say, let's eat together. Let's drink together. But that means something different there. And I would probably still say it. Accept your brothers. Accept the one who's weak in faith without quarreling or disputing over debatable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now, let me just make this. I mean, when you go to the Old Testament, you're looking for stellar examples of people. One of the stellar examples in the Old Testament is Daniel. And what happened when Daniel was invited into the king's pagan palace? He ate only vegetables and drank only water. He's a stellar example. You could easily apply that. And they're saying if, if somebody makes that decision, don't, don't despise them, don't judge them. But if somebody actually is, is free, remember, that's okay as well. Don't despise them. This, this word for despising, as much as the first word was very warm, this is a very harsh word. It's very strong. Um, it, it's reject them with contempt. Um, it, it, is, it is the contempt of, I can't tolerate them. And you may, not, um, you may not say anything, but it can be seen on your face when you roll your eyes. They did what? <laughs> it's that kind of contempt. Okay? Don't do that. If they're on your team, they love the Lord Jesus Christ, they're for him, um, don't reject them. John Stott makes a really interesting observation. This principle is even better than the golden rule. It is safe to treat others as you would like them to treat us, but it's even safer still to treat them as God does. So if God has accepted them, you should accept them. Maybe they've got room to grow. Okay, God accepts them while they have room to grow. Um, just recently I read a book about someone who was making a... Um, a spiritual journey, I'm not going to go into the details, but this spiritual journey was pretty significant from a, a very anti-God, non-moral place to um, a place over here where I, I wanted him to land. But, but in the course of this 12-year journey for this person, as I was reading the narrative of it, there were points, points along the way where I thought, he's going to land here. Don't land there. Whoa, stop. No, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep going. And, 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 I mean, from my perspective, I was glad he kept moving. He kept moving, but it took 12 years. There was room for growth. Give people room for growth. Accept your brothers and sisters, Paul says. It, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master or servants, a servant stands or falls. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. God's their judge. I mean, this is the uncomfortable thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I, I, I'm trying to get the uncomfortable feeling of it. It's the uncomfortable feeling 
when parents are disciplining children that aren't theirs and they don't have permission to do it, mm, I just saw a bunch of eyes roll. Doesn't that just rub you the wrong way? Now, you may have a relationship where um, grandparents or, you know, friends are, are able to kind of intervene and help with raising the children. No, I'm, I'm talking about when, when somebody else jumps in there. <laughs> okay, well, take that feeling. God's going to deal with them. If, if, there's a, if there's growth, if there's need, God can deal with it. Um, you're not the judge, so don't judge them. Accept them. Welcome them in. If they're on the team, welcome them in. Give them time to grow. Let God judge them if they need to be judged. Because the fact is, you may be the one who needs to grow. To be clear, Tom Schreiner says, how can Paul tolerate such diversity in the community? The weak do not claim that one must observe certain days and abstain from various foods in order to gain salvation. Paul would have resisted passionately such a position. We're not talking about an issue of salvation here. That issue comes up in Galatians, where, where some of the Galatians are saying, you have to observe the law in order to be saved. And Paul says, no way. If anybody preaches that, let them be cursed. We're not talking about the doctrine of salvation. We're just talking about how you live out your Christian life, how you apply the principles of Scripture to your life. So, so accept them. Don't reject them and despise them and roll your eyes at them. If somebody has a different conviction than you, um, let God judge them. Be friendly with them. Don't make an issue of it all the time. And then he's going to say this. He's going to say, hold your convictions before the Lord, not others. Just remember that your convictions and their convictions are not there to please one another. They are there to please the Lord. Here's how Paul says it. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to the Lord. And whoever abstains does so for the Lord and gives thanks to God. Whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of God and make that the issue. If somebody's got something place where they differ, just go, are you trying to please the Lord in this? Then great. Don't push it on one another. Make the issue, are you trying to do this fully convinced in your mind that you're bringing glory to God? Tom Schreiner says, Paul can tolerate diverse practices which don't violate any biblical or moral norms as long as they are motivated by the glory of God. That's the, that's the discussion. Rather than fighting about it, really ask yourself, are you trying to bring glory to God in everything you do? And are we going to bring glory to God in how we handle this thing that we may differ on? Because we're called not to live to please one another or to fix one another. It's not what you're supposed to do in life. Um, boy, this is so true in marriage, isn't it? <laughs> if you're living to just please one another or fix one another, you're going to have real conflict. The idea is, how do you bring glory to God by how you live with one another? Um, broaden that out in all your other relationships. You're not there just to make people happy and live against your conscience, and you're not there to push your conscience on them and fix them. It's all about bringing glory to the Lord. Here's how he says it. For none of us lives lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. 
So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living, uh, of the dead and the living. Christ is the Lord of everything, and his death and resurrection is to unite us all. That, that's what unites us. When, when, you're, when you're baptized, you're baptized in the likeness of his death and the likeness of his resurrection. Everybody goes through the same kind of baptism because it unites us in Christ. John Harvey just summarized it well. We, set, we accept others' positions on non-essentials because God has accepted them, Christ died for them, and God will evaluate them. They're, it's God's business to judge them. John Stott says, Paul's conciliatory attitude toward the weak, not allowing the strong to despise, browbeat, or condemn, or damage them, is also in keeping with the Jerusalem Council's decree in Acts 15, which had been designed precisely to restrain the strong and safeguard the consciences of the weak. Um, this is consistent throughout Scripture. As long as it's not doctrinal or moral, you allow people to practice the way they want to practice. And don't roll your eyes and don't push your convictions on them either. Um, why? Because we're all accountable to God. We will all stand before the, the Bema seat. Let me just real quickly play this out. There's two judgments that's co- that are coming in the future. One for unbelievers, it's presented in the book of Revelation, and unbelievers will stand before the great white throne judgment and be judged on how they live their life. The great white throne judgment essentially goes like this. I'll paraphrase the scene. Everybody who's trusted Christ and who's allowed Christ to be their performance and their righteousness, everybody get in this line. Everybody else who didn't trust Christ, you want to go it on your own and be judged on your own works, you get in this line. You've already made your decisions, by the way. Everybody who gets in the line that is the I didn't trust Christ line, you have to have your works judged and everyone falls short. That's the great white throne judgment. There's another judgment. Everybody in this line over here who's trusted Christ, they line up for their rewards and their life will be reviewed. And at the Bema, which is a judgment seat where rewards were handed out in competitions, um, you are reviewed as to whether you played by the rules and then you get your reward. We will stand and be evaluated by how we lived our life, not for whether we go to heaven or hell, but for whether we will be rewarded or not. You're accountable to God. Here's how he says it. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? And why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. That's the word bema. It's technically the the place where rewards were given out at athletic games. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. They're going to have to give an account before God. So so let them live their life and, and encourage them, be a positive influence on them. We're going to see that. Just don't judge them. Don't, don't treat them with contempt. Don't draw your circle too narrow. Um, and this may mean that you have to limit your freedom. You may have to limit your freedom so that there are certain things you don't do for a weak brother whose conscience would be offended. Now, up until this point, it's probably been easy if you identify with the strong. Because you're like, yeah, <laughs> If I'm, I'm, I want to be strong, I don't want to be weak. 
I want to be part of the strong. I want to have the freedom. I want to understand grace. I want to embrace grace. Yes, Ken says embrace grace all the time. It rhymes, and he says it frequently. Embrace grace, but limit your freedom so that you don't offend a brother. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Don't do anything with your attitudes, rolling your eyes, or your actions that's going to cause a brother or or sister to stumble and violate their conscience. Paul's point is clear. Those who pride themselves in being strong should display their spiritual maturity by doing everything they can do to avoid bringing spiritual downfall to a brother or sister. If you're really strong, don't demand that your way be taken um, all the time. Let me tell you how I uh, manipulate this point (laughs) in our church. There are people uh, in our church who I know for sure would like for us to sing more traditional hymns. We sing hymns from time to time. They would like for us to sing more traditional hymns. I get that. Here's how I usually talk to them. Listen, because you're so much more mature, I would really love for you as the more mature person to recognize that the younger crowd who we really need to be bringing in and bringing in, they don't like the traditional hymns. They like the, the other stuff that's a little louder, got more bass. And, and if you could just, because you're more mature, defer to the, to the younger folks. <laughs> How many have I had that conversation with you? Sorry. I mean, but that is, that is the truth. The, the truth. If you're, if you're more mature, then then you should be the one who's, who's able to, to avoid offending somebody else and, and give in on this. Um, he says, um, don't put a, um, a stumbling block or an obstacle. He uses two different words. The first one is more accidental. Um, this is just as like a raised rock you would trip over. Um, don't become a raised rock people trip over by your behavior. Somebody is coming along, they see what you're doing, and it would be offensive to them, and, and you, oh, you accidentally did it. Be, be circumspect. Think about your, your life and how you're living your life. Think about what you're doing. Um, but the second word is, is a much more um, strong word. Um, I'm going to say the Greek word, scandalon. Don't cause people to trip, and don't be scandalous in your behavior. Um, This is an intentional obstacle. It's not a raised rock you trip over. This is putting a block in front of somebody and just going, I'm free, I can do this, and causing them. This is an important issue to me, and you better behave like I behave. You better make my choice on masks, homeschooling. You better make my choice on the vaccine. You better make my choice on the political party you associate with. You better vote for who I vote for. You better be angry with who I'm angry with. You better watch the news channel I watch. And it's making an issue out of these things. Paul says this, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing's unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it's unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, or you, uh, you eat you're no longer acting in love. If your issue makes somebody uncomfortable, don't make an issue of it. Give it up. Be mature enough to give it up. 
Don't distress them. This is another pretty intense word. It refers not to just being um, upset, like, oh, that bothers me. It just it bothers me when I hear that. It bothers me when that happens. This is turmoil. This is the kind of upset that you get um, in the New Testament when, when you lose a loved one. It's that kind of upset. Um, when, when relationships that are really intense, Paul and his church at Corinth, when that relationship is stressed and broken, this is the word, don't cause that kind of turmoil by your behavior. And if you're the strong person, limit your freedom. You may have the freedom to do that in other places, but don't put it in the face of other people. And how could you distress them? I want to say there's two ways you can distress people. You can distress them through peer pressure. Um, they can be distressed because they're compelled by your example and your attitude to do something that they're not comfortable doing. You just, oh, I'm free to do that. I'm free to do that. And, and, and your, your peer pressure causes them to go, I'm not, I don't feel okay with that. Or you can put so much um, of your freedom in their face that they're offended. They're shocked by your behavior. Um, that's why it's, it's really important for you to think, what are you doing out there? And is it, is it okay to say, I can limit my freedom as a Christian brother to not cause others to be in a position where they're stumbling? Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. Even if you know grace allows me to do this or grace has moved me to this position, even if you're there, <laughs> don't make that something that all of a sudden causes tensions. Should we have circles? Yes, and in certain ways... Um, those circles are, are narrow, but, but for the most part, I, I'm looking for ways to say, who can I partner with? <laughs> who loves Jesus? <laughs> They're on my team. I may not have to agree with them, and if we can have a civil conversation, say, here's why I take my position, there's why you take your position, then that's fine. Frank Thielman says this, if the strong insist on putting their theological convictions into practice in a way that damages the faith of the weak, the resulting divisiveness will bring justified criticism from unbelievers and hinder the progress of the gospel. Don't you believe, and if you don't, um, I, I'm trying to encourage you to believe, one of Satan's greatest victories is to get us to fight with each other. He loves it. Because the world looks at it and says, I don't want anything to do with that. Those guys are fighting over squabbly issues. Who's the best preacher? Who do you listen to online? Um, do you give 9% or 10% or 11%? Do you support missions through your church or um, outside of your church? Um, what translation do you use? How often do you go to church? Gosh, Satan loves it when we're divided. But the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. If we could just get along, then the world would look at that and go, hey, that's a kingdom I'd like to be a part of. 
Look, they, they love each other. They take care of each other. And even where there's differences, they warmly welcome each other into their homes. They're not pushing their convictions. Um, they are um, living their freedoms, and, and they're, they're limiting their freedoms. They're, they're allowing people to, to live differently, except for some core issues. And maybe I want to be interested in those core issues. The Bible's really true. There's a God who loves me enough to send his son who by the Holy Spirit will convict me of my sin because in my own humanity I fall short of the glory of God and look to him for salvation and and my hope be in him setting everything right, not in me having to fix it all. John Stott says there's a similar need for discernment today. We must not evaluate non-essentials, especially issues of custom and ceremony, to the level of essential and make them tests of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship. Nor must we marginalize fundamental theological or moral questions as if they were only cultural and have no great importance. Paul distinguishes between these two, and so should we. If we can get along on the non-essentials, then it makes it easier for us to say, how important is this one? Maybe this one is important enough to to raise to the level of non-essential. But we've got to practice on, or, or to raise to the level of essential. But we, we practice on these non-essentials and say, yeah, that, uh, you can have that. I see how you're applying that. And I, you know, do you see how I'm applying? You see how this allows me to do that? I mean, you, you talk about it enough that in the midst of the conversations, there may be things that you go, hey, let's talk about this one long enough to go, well, actually, this one really is essential. Men and women are created in the image of God. Um, and, and, and the culture may be fighting against that, but Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is pretty clear. We're created in his image, male and female. Okay, well, how do you, how do you continue to love people who maybe want to debate how that is particularly um, expressed? Well, I know I'm going to love at the end of the day, but I'm not going to give up on what I know is clear biblical teaching. But let's learn how to talk about that. Frank Tillman says, if the strong use their strength to live out the principle of righteousness and peace in their relationships with the weak, they'll be presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice to God and providing an attractively peaceable character to everyone, including unbelievers. If we can figure out how to get along, people would like the church better. (laughs) But because we keep fighting with each other, nobody wants a part of us. (laughs) It's pretty simple. Let's get along better. Let's start, stop sniping. I mean, we've got a unique DNA here at Fellowship, and, and, and that's good. Let's, let's be who we are. But there are a lot of other good churches in town that we can partner with. And, and people are so shocked when they attend Fellowship. And I say, what are you looking for in a church? And they tell me, and, and sometimes I go, here are the three churches you need to visit. Because you're not going to be happy here. And I'm not going to be happy with you not being happy here. So you might as well go find another good church in town. There are plenty of good churches in town. We're going to be who we are. Don't try to make us who we aren't. We're going to be who we are, and you find where you need to be. And so he ends with this admonition to edify. When Dawn and I were dating, we were part of a group, and and kind of the phrase in the group was, edify, stupid. Um, I think that's worth taking on. (laughs) Edify each other. It's about edification, stupid. It's about building one another up. It's not about getting things right. By the way, don't say stupid because it's not very edifying. Edify, stupid. 
Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to stumble. The point is, how are you building them up? We practice Christian liberty by avoiding anything that causes others to stumble, by not forcing our convictions on others, by pursuing peace and edification with others while maintaining our own convictions before the Lord. Believe what you believe strongly and don't force it on other people. This idea of edification, it's building a house. It's literally the word for a house or a household. You're building a house. You're building a household. And once you have your own convictions, then live consistently by them. Live by your convictions. Just don't push push them on other people. And by the way, I love when I see that around fellowship. People who are committed to certain things and values, and they live them out strongly, and they don't push them on others. I'm not talking about morals. I'm talking about um, involvement in politics homeschool choices, um, adoption, and people who are committed to these values but aren't pushing them on other people. Once you have your convictions, live by them and live with a clear conscience. So whatever you believe about these things, keep that between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is of sin. Live by your convictions. Have your convictions. Because if if you're not living by your convictions, you're being pressed one way or the other. It's sinful. You're condemned yourself. So let me give the strong and the weak and a third category. Live by your convictions, but don't flaunt your freedom. Live by your convictions, don't be pressured or offended. And if you're a legalist, you believe that your way is required for salvation and growth, then repent and embrace God's grace for salvation and sanctification. Because there's three categories. There's the strong, there's the weak, and then there's the legalist. Dawn and I's pastor in... When I was in seminary, Stan Toussaint said, never offend a weaker brother. Go out of your way to offend a legalist. Because a legalist is making this a matter of salvation and sanctification. Folks, in gray matters, let's make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. So I've got some next steps that I'll get to here that are pretty easy stop judging (laughs) okay stop judging own your own convictions strongly own the way you live by grace own the things that you think are important don't push them on other people and stop judging other people unless it's a doctrinal or moral issue and then still peaceably have a conversation that will build them up So therefore, live in light of eternity because God will take care of the judging, okay? God takes care of the judging. And he's going to ask you one day, how did you, not how did you judge. (laughs) He's going to ask you one day, how did you build up? How did you encourage? How did your grace um, allow you to share that grace with others and 
how did you limit your freedoms so that others could thrive? Stop judging. Own your convictions well. And live in light of eternity because God will judge and God will judge you by how we live.